When the English colonists arrived in New England in the late autumn of 1620, they described a vast wilderness devoid of civilization and civilized people. That being said, we know as public historians, as well as they did, that the land was not empty. Native communities with populations numbering in the hundreds, if not thousands, had lived on this land we now call New England for generations. The English new arrivals were not blind to their presence. In early accounts of their explorations on Cape Cod and what is now Greater Plymouth, William Bradford and Edward Winslow described native homes, burial practices, burial grounds, agriculture, and material culture. Native men drift on the periphery of these Eurocentric accounts, but they, and evidence of their cultures, are present nonetheless. So what made these English families think that this land they were settling was theirs to claim? What legal right did Europeans have to it? And why were they coming 3,000 miles across the Atlantic to get it? At our annual spring conference in March of 2016, Dr. Malcolm Smuts, Professor Emeritus of History at University of Massachusetts, Boston, addressed these and other questions in a lecture on land use and the whys of colonization. Here too, uh, I've always regarded Plymouth Plantation as a fascinating place and uh, to visit, but also to work with. Um, the work you're doing here is so different from standard academic work um, and yet related in so many ways that it's just great to be able to participate in it. Um, what I was asked to talk about today, as I understand it, is essentially the question of what did English settlers think they were doing in acquiring property rights over land in America? In their minds, what gave them the right to make private property out of territory that was already inhabited by natives? And there are really two explanations of how this happened, both already present in the Robert Cushman piece that you read, both of which continue throughout American history into the present, and um, they're really implicitly contradictory. One explanation is a doctrine that has sometimes been described as vacuum domicilium, Latin for empty house or terra nullius, no man's land. Uh, this is basically a claim that American natives have no property rights to the territory they inhabit because they have not used and developed the land in a way that to English eyes confers possession. Um, it's an argument that's most systematically developed in the late 17th century in chapter five of John Locke's Second Treatise of Government, uh, to which I'll return at the end of the talk. But the idea is already present in Cushman. Um, you may remember the passage. He says, their land is spacious and void, and there are few and do but run over the grass as do also the foxes and wild beasts. They are not industrious, neither have art, science, skill, or faculty to use either the land or the commodities of it, but all spoils, rots, and is marred for want of manuring, gathering, and ordering. So there's a sense of moral disapproval here. How dare these natives inhabit this rich country and let it go to waste, right? Um, 
But there's also the implication that the natives are not proprietors of the land so much as they are, in a sense, part of the natural landscape. They belong to nature. They're not over nature the way that we Englishmen are. And therefore, they're not ordering nature. Um, Cushman goes on to describe America as a vast and empty chaos. And the implication is that because it's a chaos, Englishmen have the right and maybe even the moral duty to come in and order it. This is a notion that, of course, continues through American history, through John Winthrop's description of Massachusetts Bay as an errand into the wilderness. Right? If it's a wilderness, then obviously it's devoid of civil inhabitants. Um, the American development of the frontier, the notion that Americans are creating an empire of liberty on a new continent that's empty, right? all of which, of course, glosses over the fact that the land was already inhabited, that in expanding, European Americans are destroying native ways of life. Um, because somehow the native ways of life don't count. And obviously, you know, this barely needs to be said, all of this is also linked to stereotypes of native people that may be positive or negative in valence, but as somehow savage, primitive, close to nature, simple, not like us civilized Europeans. Um, but there's also a second argument already present in Kutchman which is that New England belongs to native kings who have voluntarily recognized the lordship of the king of England and have welcomed and invited English settlers to come and inhabit. And this notion of native proprietorship, which is then negotiated away, also continues through American history. And the implication is that title to land begins not with individual owners, but with sovereigns. Right? King of England, king of the native tribes, maybe later on sovereign republican governments, right? like the United States with all of its native treaties, appropriating land, settling the natives on reservations, and then opening up the rest to white settlement. Um, and it's been argued that this is really the dominant notion in American history, not least because it's convenient for European and American settlers. If you're going to settle this land and divide it up among Europeans, you have to have clear property rights. And if you're going to have clear property rights, well, it's nice to have a starting point with a treaty that's on paper that stipulates who gets the land. And if a government gets the land, then the government can decide who it's sold to or leased to or rented to. And of course, in the American West, much of the land still belongs to the federal government and is farmed by paying rents. And of course, as we know, this is now a great controversy in places like Idaho. Um, now, if you think about it, these two notions, you know, ignoring the fact of whether there's any truth in either of them, um, even if you grant, for the sake of argument, that they're true, they don't add up, right? If Native Americans are like beasts wandering free over the land, how do they acquire the ability to make treaties? 
if they have organized governments that can make treaties, then can you really describe them as like foxes just inhabiting wild in the forest, right? Doesn't make sense. But that doesn't seem to bother Cushman or others. Um, you, know, you get the sense that Cushman is just reaching for arguments that serve his purpose and not too concerned about philosophical consistency. Um, but both of these notions, and especially the notion of vacuum domicilium, have complicated roots in English and old world history, roots that um, are in part legal, in part political, that sometimes have to do with economics, that also have religious dimensions. And that's what I want to talk about for a while before we get to Locke. And we can begin with the concept of private property itself. Ever since the late 17th century, the notion that private property is essential to liberty and to free government has been embedded in what was first a Whig and then later a liberal concept of government. It comes down through the American Revolution. It's embedded in our political culture. Um, but in English common law, as it comes down from the Middle Ages, there is no modern concept of absolute property right. In a sense, that concept had to be invented. And it was invented over the course of the 17th century. Now, let me explain. The common law was originally the product of a medieval society. And in a medieval society, there is no real distinction between ownership over land and things and control over people. Right? The two are mixed up together. Um, land in this concept is not owned, rather it is held. It is held in the first instance by manorial lords from the king, usually in return for military service. I will provide you with so many knights. In return, I get a manor, which provides me with the resources to support those knights. It is then held in turn by tenants from the lords. And the manner in which it's held depends on the nature of the tenancy and, to a great extent, on the nature of the community. Right? It's physical topography. It's customs. So you can have a free tenant who is subject to the manor court and who may owe the lord an annual payment for his land, but otherwise pretty well controls it. It's almost like proper, private property, not quite. But there are also, at first, lots of serfs who have a little plot that they can farm that's theirs, but in return, they owe the lord so many days of labor per week and all sorts of other specific dues. Or there may be land that the lord holds directly and leases out through contractual arrangements, right? All of these things are possible. And so the nature of land holding is ambiguous. You have some rights over the land, but not absolute control over it. Your rights over the land are integrated with obligations to your lord or to the king, right? And sometimes also to the community. Now, this would depend on the region. There are places called woodland regions in England, where the holdings tend to be compact 
plots that belong to a particular family. But there are also regions called common field regions where you have large fields with individual peasant households having strips within those fields. Um, but the fields are farmed through a pooling of labor. Everybody plants the same crops at the same time. Neighbors lend out their beasts and their plows to each other. And when the harvest is collected, the field is thrown open to the village herd. So it's as if it's private land, in a sense, when you're farming crops on it, but public land once the harvest is in. And even when you're farming crops, you can't farm whatever crop you want. You have to sow what the village is sowing, when the village sows it, harvest it when the village sows it, right? So your obligations are not only to the Lord, they're to the community. And any change in farming methods is communally determined. So it's a very messy and ambiguous situation. In theory, all of these rights are fixed through immemorial custom. In reality, there would have been a lot of give and take. Right? If there's a lax landlord, the tenants tend to expand their customary rights. If there's an aggressive landlord, he pushes back. Um, one of the big changes in the 15th century mainly, um, servile tenants died out, largely because there was a period of population decline so that the balance of power shifted towards the tenants, and the lords commuted labor dues for money rents so that the serfs became what were called copy holders who held their tenures in return for an annual rent and usually a fine when the tenancy changed hands, when a father died and his son inherited it. And the fine might be fixed, it might be arbitrary, it all depended on the nature of the copyhold and the customs of that manner. In all villages, there were also so-called common lands that were not fully public, rather they belonged to the community, to the parish, to the village, where you could graze your animals, where you could gather firewood. Sometimes these were fairly small, but in places they could be extensive. For example, in marshy areas with lots of fenlands, you might have a compact agricultural village surrounded by a big swampy forest where people could fish and hunt for birds and gather twigs and use them to create wicker baskets and the like. You know, there are little handicraft industries that depend on these commons. Um, and the use of these common lands is really integrated into a village economy. So property rights are rather, in a sense, nebulous in this situation although people certainly have a sense of what they have a right to do and what they don't have a right to do. Now, in roughly the century before the settlement of Plymouth, these ambiguities were coming under pressure from a couple of different directions. One of them was political. As conflicts began to erupt between the king and his subjects, his parliaments, over taxation especially, it became inconvenient to have a system in which all land was held from the king 
because if all land was held from the king, well then arguably all individual rights to the use of that land was dependent on royal grants, which could in extreme circumstances be undone, and so you would have no right to withhold taxes from the king. And a variation on this argument, a religious variation, um, associated especially with a man named Sir Robert Filmer, is that originally all the land had belonged to Adam as the common father of mankind. Adam had then distributed the land among some of his sons, and the kings were his, as it were, residual legatees as the fathers of their people. So it's a patriarchal system in which the father, the king, owns the land and you use it at his sufferance. That's obviously an authoritarian argument. If you want to resist it, you need some other concept of property, as it were. Some other concept of how a subject has absolute rights over what is his. And that tends to lead toward attempts at clarifying just what these rights are. One early 17th century orator in Parliament, talking about these things, said in a phrase that I think is very resonant, is that the subject must not be made a tenant at will of his liberties. Now, a tenant at will is a special kind of tenant in the 17th century who is able to farm a plot so long as the landlord pleases under the conditions that have been agreed. But if the landlord changes his mind, he can evict the tenant at a moment's notice. Right? So the notion is, we can't have our rights in this situation. Um, a second reason for the change is economic. There's inflation in the 16th century. Over the course of the century, the value of money declines roughly by two-thirds. Actually, quite slow inflation by modern standards, but was there. Now what that meant is that fixed traditional rents were becoming less and less valuable, so the landlords were getting squeezed, and they had every incentive, therefore, to force out the copyholders, especially, who were more vulnerable. For example, by levying huge fines when the copyholds changed hands, to convert the land into leaseholds so that the lords could then renegotiate the rents, right? Leasehold land you often have a lease for 33 years, for 99 years, but once the lease is up, the conditions can be freely renegotiated. Um, and so the landlords are trying to acquire more extensive rights over the land. If you're a tenant, you obviously have incentives to resist this kind of landlord aggression. And so the tenants are trying to define their rights as this is happening, there's also a great growth in litigation in the king's courts. Um, it's been calculated that the number of country lawyers in England increases by a factor of six in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Right? So if you've got six times as many lawyers, it means you've got a lot more lawsuits. Um, and so these disputes are leading to legal challenges that are sorting out who has what rights. and there tends to be a movement toward emphasis on written documents rather than vague oral customs because, of course, courts like certainty in written documents. Um, now, this creates a culture 
which would have been very familiar to anyone settling in Plymouth, in which it is very important for you to know your legal rights and know how to defend them. Right? If you don't know your legal rights, if you are not determined to defend them, you could easily be victimized by a neighbor, by a landlord, by someone else. And so even fairly humble people have a stake in the system and in defining the system in a way that benefits them rather than someone else. Um, a wrinkle on this, you also get a lot of what are called vexatious suits. One neighbor getting angry at another and just starting a lawsuit right, to annoy him. Um, this becomes a scourge in society. And Queen Elizabeth at one point complains of the pettifoggers and vipers of the Commonwealth, by which she means the lawyers who were sowing divisions and stirring things up. Um, when the Civil War happens, uh, once it's over, you get a bunch of prosecutions of former soldiers for stealing horses. What's going on? Well, you know, imagine it. You've got a ca cavalry brigade in a war. A horse gets shot. The guy goes out and commandeers a horse to replace it. The war ends. The guy who owned the horse said, ah, you didn't have a legal title to that horse. I can put your life at risk by accusing you of stealing the horse. And this becomes then a major issue, a political issue. Uh, but it suggests a mentality. Right? These people are primed to use the law, sometimes very aggressively, um, to settle their rights. Now, as all of this is happening, there's also significant population growth. Again, it's slow by modern standards, but the population roughly doubles over the course of the 16th century. So you go from a situation in which land was fairly plentiful and tenants were often in short supply to one in which suddenly there are more people than the land can really hold by traditional farming methods, in which, as historians have put it, villages are filling up at the bottom. There are more and more people on substandard holdings who can't really support themselves by farming their holdings, who are therefore partly dependent on wage labor. Some of them are getting pushed off the land and are wandering in search of opportunities because they have no place in the village of their birth. Um, if they find opportunities, fine. If not, they get classified as vagrants, which is illegal. There's growing poverty. The villages are made responsible for supporting their own poor, but of course they want to limit the extent of how much they have to support the poor. So for example, if a servant girl gets pregnant out of wedlock, there's an incentive to push her out of the house and onto the roads, hoping that she'll give birth to the little bastard somewhere else so that it'll be somebody else's problem to pay for its upbringing. You get all this sort of dynamic. Um, And the population growth is also advantaging the landlords and the larger tenants because food prices are being pushed up. So if you have more land than you need to support yourself, you can make a profit. But wages are declining in real value, so the poor are getting poorer, whereas the sort of prospering upper middle sorts and the landlords are on the whole doing quite well. And this will eventually, through a very slow process, lead to an evolution um, in which England no longer becomes a place with a lot of 
independent subsistence farmers. Instead, you get a three-tiered system of landlords, large commercial farmers leasing substantial tracts of land from the landlords, and agricultural laborers, the kind of society you find described, for example, in a Thomas Hardy novel, right? the classic 18th, 19th century village landscape. That's still a ways off in the 17th century, but there are already pressures and changes leading in that direction. Now, these economic pressures, in turn, are gradually leading to a stress on what the period calls improvement, the word that is used. Improving an estate. Improving an estate can mean many things. The simplest thing it can mean is raising the rents if you're the landlord. If an estate is capable of improvement, well, maybe it's because there are a lot of leases at low rents that are going to fall in soon. And when they fall in, you can jack up the rents. And so the annual yield to the landlord will be greater. But improvement can also shade into um, meanings of farming differently to make the land more productive. To the beginnings of what we would call scientific agronomy, right? the introduction of new crops, some of them from the new world, of different methods of farming, different rotations, so that you maintain the fertility of the fields but produce more food from it. Um, drainage project, projects. If you've got a swamp, maybe you can dig a canal, drain it, and turn it into farmland. Right? Um, more commercial agriculture, especially around cities. Instead of just growing wheat in the vicinity of London, maybe you can plant fruit trees or grow artichokes and asparagus and sell them in the London market where there's a market for this sort of luxury produce that will generate much more money. Some of this is inspired by ancient treatises on agronomy that educated people are reading. Some of it is just a matter of observation and experimentation. And it, you know, it starts out as a kind of minority interest among some landlords with an intellectual interest, but it takes hold. And it's probably worth pointing out that the real pioneers in this sort of improvement are not the English, the Dutch. The Netherlands was a waterlogged country, lots of lakes, lots of marshes. In the 16th and 17th century, many of these marshes are being drained, often using windmills to pump the water out. There are peat bogs that are being quarried partly for fuel, but also for fertilizer. So if you mix the peat with sand, right, you create fertile soil. Um, there's a lot of trade in the Netherlands, which brings in grain, which means that you can now specialize in things like dairy farming. And the Dutch start to breed cattle to increase milk yields. And it's all going on apace in the 17th century. And one presumes that the Plymouth settlers who were in Leiden would have, would have seen it. It's literally creating more land and making the land much more productive. And that's allowing Dutch towns and cities to grow because the land is so productive 
that it produces a surplus, which if combined with trade, right, can support urban populations of manufacturers and merchants and the like. Um, so that's regarded you know, as a model. And the English, sometimes quite deliberately, begin to imitate Dutch and to some extent French and other European methods. Now, as this happens, there are, of course, winners and losers. Because often, to take advantage of these new methods, you have to change the way in which the land is being farmed. And not surprisingly, the changes generally work to the benefit of the prosperous. So for example, if we go back to those open field lands I mentioned at the beginning, right, where you have big fields divided into little strips and they're all farmed in common. Um, one thing that sometimes happens is that there are agreements among the more prosperous peasant proprietors and the landlords to redistribute the strips into compact plots and then enclose them with barriers, usually a hedge, and convert the method of farming from a communal method to an individual method in which each individual gets to farm his land in his own way. And so you can introduce all sorts of new methods on your land. Um, but what this means is that if you don't have a strip in the common field, or if you have only a very small one, you don't get much land or any land in compensation and you lose the benefit of being able to graze your beasts on the common field when it's not being farmed. Right? And if the village common is included in this redistribution, which sometimes happens, you lose your rights to common. So you're being pushed down by these changes into the ranks of the wage laborers. Um, and that's going on in some parts of England, not everywhere. And not all enclosures are new enclosures. There were enclosures that went back to the early Middle Ages. But some enclosures were new enclosures. Land was gradually being enclosed until by the 19th century, there are only one or two open field villages left in England. Um, and of course, all of these changes would have been acutely felt by the people experiencing them. And there would have been folk memories of how it was before the enclosure took place. And, even folk memories of serfdom, although that's a couple of hundred years in the past. But there have been recent interesting studies of the sense of history of ordinary people in England that suggest that there is, in fact, in many ways, a very long cultural memory. Finally, it's worth mentioning a special case, um, Ireland. We think of plantation here in America as an American phenomenon. But in fact, most English plantations and most English planters or colonists, and the words were used in the period, most English planters go to Ireland, not to America. And Ireland, of course, was also inhabited by descendants of medieval Englishmen who had gone over, but also by the Gaelic inhabitants. Now, Gaelic Ireland in the 16th century had a different system of law from England. It had its own class of lawyers, experts in that law. It had its own system of land owning. Land belonged to groups called septs, roughly equivalent to 
uh, Scottish clans. They're sort of lineage groups of the Irish elite who collectively control the land uh, and the peasants who live on the land. And the sept has a way of choosing its leaders. Um, the peasants owe various things to the lords, but what they owe includes supporting the soldiers of the sept leaders, because all of these septs have their own little armies. They're frequently fighting each other. Many of these wars amount to little more than glorified cattle raids, but they're going on all the time. Often they're fighting the English. Um, the main wealth in much of Ireland was cattle, not land. It's a sparsely settled area with, with big herds of cows wandering over the land. One of my favorite little anecdotes is uh, an Irish messenger captured from the English who bragged he was not an ordinary Irishman, but a man of some importance, having control over 10 men and 20,000 cows. Right? <laughs> you know, transport that to Wyoming in the 19th century, and you can see what he means, right? He's, he's got a big spread. He's got a few people under him. And, this huge herd. Um, the English were very clear that this is a separate system of landholding, and they didn't like it. They saw it as barbarous, as tyrannical, as savage. They used those terms. And they saw it as a source of the constant lawlessness and violence of Ireland that was creating no end of headaches for themselves. Right? Irish rebellions, eruptions of lawlessness in Ireland. And so they're very explicit by the Elizabethan period that what they need to do is to kill all the Irish lawyers, eradicate the Irish customs, impose English common law, and one way to do this is to create plantations in which you settle Englishmen in Ireland, have them farm in the English way, make sure they bring their guns with them so they can defend the land against the Irish, and in time, the goal is that you get the Irish to see that this is a better way of life so that the Irish will begin to imitate the English and farm in the English manner and hold land under English law. And you'll get the erection of a class of Irish freeholders holding under the king's law who will be loyal to the crown of England. And the Irish will then become just like the English. They'll pay their taxes. They'll live in peace. And all of these nasty Irish problems will go away. This is the rhetoric. And it's being translated on the ground, sometimes extremely brutally. If you have an English plantation and the Irish attack it, and they sometimes do, or if there's an Irish rebellion, the English with their soldiers fight back. The Irish often resort to a kind of guerrilla campaign. They, they go into the swamps and the woods and hide from the English, engage in hit and run raids. Then the English try to finish them off by destroying food supplies, starving them out, burning villages killing or rounding up the cattle, killing women and children if they can be found. I mean, all this is going on in Elizabethan Ireland. All of the atrocities you read about in colonial wars against Native Americans um, have precedence in what the English have been doing in Ireland in the 16th century. But the argument is that it's in the long run, it's for the good of the Irish because their way of life now is savage. They're under the tyranny of the Irish lords. We're going to rescue them in the long run, teach them the values of civility is the term. Um, and therefore, even if it's bloody in the short run, it's justified in the long haul. Now, all of this in turn dovetails into 
moral and religious arguments that are often associated with Puritans, though in fact they go back to Catholic humanists like Sir Thomas More and Erasmus in the early 16th century. So they're not specifically Puritan, but Puritans often adopted them and gave them a peculiar inflection. There's a great deal of anxiety in an overcrowded England about what we would call unemployment and underemployment. Poverty, vagrancy, breakdown of communities, crime, riots, all of these things that are resulting from population pressure. What to do about it? Well, in early modern discourse, the term is not unemployment, it's idleness. And idleness, of course, is a sin and a sin related to other sins. If you're idle, you will be prone to gamble. You may be prone to quarrel. You may be prone to steal. Right? Idleness is a symptom of a kind of lack of discipline that leads to all sorts of other bad things. Um, and so it's a very bad thing. And generally, the idle need to be blamed for their idleness, but there's also a recognition that sometimes it's not entirely their fault. That people may be pushed into idleness by lack of opportunity or oppression by others. And so, for example, in much of the 16th century, enclosures have a bad name because they're associated with landlords who are evicting tenants and therefore making them idle right, through no fault of their own. This begins to change in the 17th century when some people argue that even if this is true, the enclosures allow more productivity and therefore they're beneficial, right? So, um, but again, this is a kind of thinking that you can find in Cushman, who says, I am persuaded that howsoever the frailties of men are principal in all contentions, yet the straightness of the place, England, is such as each man is fain to pluck his means as it were out of his neighbor's throat. There is such pressing and oppressing in town and country about farms, trade, traffic. So as no man hardly anywhere can set up a trade, but he shall pull down two of his neighbors. So oppressing your neighbor is a bad thing. It's sinful. But it may not be entirely the fault of the people doing the oppressing. Right? If you're in a place as crowded as England, Cushman is saying, it's very hard to live a good Christian life. Because it's almost impossible to make an honest living without cheating your neighbor. And therefore, anything that gets you out of this predicament and that lets you live productively without cheating your neighbors, is a Christian act. And of course, it also benefits you economically. Now, the antidote to idleness is industriousness, obviously. So that anything that promotes industriousness, hard work, initiative, is good for individuals, it's good for society. It's not only economically and socially beneficial, it's also godly. Right? It makes people live in the way God intended more easily. One explicit justification for English colonization of the New World is precisely that in addition to relieving England of excess people, colonies will also increase trade, and by increasing trade, they'll generate wealth and employment back home. 
Richard Hakluyt, who's one of the great Elizabethan apologists for colonization, says at one point that when an uncivil people begins to grow civil, they unfailingly develop an inordinate appetite for colored cloth. And his eyes light up. Make contact with the natives of America, teach them the benefits of civilization, and all of a sudden there will be a huge market for English cloth exports. Right? And all the weavers and spinners in England will have jobs. A very naive kind of statement, but it shows you again how he's thinking. Um, and of course, it's also not lost on people that if you develop colonies in this way, it will have strategic benefits against the Spanish, the Dutch, right, English competitors. You'll have bases in the New World, you'll increase English shipping, shipbuilding, mariners, all of these things will be good if you have to fight wars. All of these things will help you in international competition. And finally, these arguments also dovetail into an interpretation of the meaning of the fall. In the beginning, as we know from the Bible, the world was created for man's use, and originally it was perfectly ordered to do this just as human passions and desires were perfectly ordered. So people would get hungry when they needed to eat, and so on. But it would all be perfectly rational and functional. But with sin, it all collapsed. The good plants became promiscuously mixed with weeds. Human passions became mixed up so that people were pulled in different directions by desires that no longer served rational ends. Um, again, think of Cushman's phrase, the great chaos. That's what the world became at the fall. And in this situation, God told Adam and Eve that they would henceforth have to earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. Right? Labor became compulsory. In effect, labor meant striving against the disorder and recalcitrance of fallen nature to wrest a living from it. That was a religious obligation. Now, if you're thinking along these lines, arguably any work that recovers beneficial properties of nature, that orders nature, can be seen as undoing the effects of the fall, bringing us back towards that original natural order. And this will, of course, include settling wild land and farming it, but it might also include natural philosophy, experimentation, introduction of new crops, new technologies. Right? Anything that recovers the intrinsic benefits of nature and turns them to human use is not only economically beneficial, in this view, it's a godly act. There's a great Huguenot poet of the late 16th century, gets translated into English, named uh, Dubartat, who writes a poem ostensibly about the creation of the world, but it's really about all of the marvelous properties God has placed in the plant kingdom of the world. And so you get, you know, little sections devoted to the glories of the cocoa tree and so on. It goes through, but, you know, the, the notion is you, you have to discover all these properties and make use of them all around the world because that's what God intends. Uh, now notice how in this framework, very traditional Christian notions of order dovetail into an emphasis on commerce, 
an emphasis on experiment, improvement, right? This traditional mind, Christian mindset, and the sort of more innovative mindset are not always at odds. There are contexts in which they are, right? In which trade can lead you to do things that are against Christian principles. But there are also lots of ways in a 17th century mentality in which you can reconcile the two and see the profit motive and commercial expansion as a Christian act. All of this, in a sense, comes together in the second treatise of John Locke and a very famous theory of property develops in chapter five. Um, Locke was secretary to the Earl of Shaftesbury, who was leader of the first English Whigs, the group in parliament and beyond parliament who were resisting the king and royal absolutism. But Shaftesbury was also the proprietor of the Carolina colony. And Locke as his secretary was involved in planning the colonization of the Carolinas. And he later got a position through Shaftesbury on the Board of Trade, which also involved him in colonial policy. So he's very much aware of the New World, even though his main focus is on political contexts back in England. And you can see that America is in the back of his mind as he develops his arguments in the Second Treatise, even though his main intention is to refute arguments that support royal absolutism. Now, because he's refuting royal absolutism, he begins by taking aim at the claim that the world originally had an owner, right? because that can lead to a theory that the king still owns the land. And so he argues very explicitly that in the beginning, when people lived in a state of nature, all people were free and everything was owned in common. There was no private property. But he hastens to add that freedom was not license. People were still subject to a law of nature which Locke um, uh, equates with reason. Reason teaches that people have no right to oppress each other when it's to no advantage to themselves. Reason also teaches that people need to make use of nature to the best advantage of life and convenience. It's obvious, common sense. If you're planted in a forest, you have to find a way to food yourself. He then makes a crucial second step. To make use of nature, he argues, individuals must be able to appropriate goods of nature in the most obvious and basic way by eating them. A deer roaming wild in the forest belongs to no one. But if you shoot the deer and cook it and eat it, obviously it becomes yours in the most intimate sense. It becomes part of your flesh. Right? And so too if you gather acorns or plums. And so God must have intended that people have a right to appropriate goods of nature for their own use. But, he adds, no more goods than they need for their use. There is no right to hoard goods that will go to waste by spoiling. How do you acquire this kind of property? Well, Locke argues that it is because everyone has 
a property right in their own body, even in a state of nature, and therefore in the work of their hands. And so by mingling your labor with nature, you acquire rights over nature. If you gather the acorns, they are yours, even though they were no ones before you gathered them. And again, this is true only insofar as you need those acorns and use them properly. If you waste them, you lose your right. And Locke then extends this argument to the land itself. As much land as a man tills, plants, improves, and cultivates, and can use the product of, so much is his property. He does by his labor, as it were, enclose it from the common. God, when he gave the world in common to all mankind, commanded man also to labor, and the penury of his condition required it of him. God, in his reason, commanded him to subdue the earth, to improve it for the benefit of life, and therein lay out something upon it that was his own, his labor. Right. So if you plant crops on land, it becomes yours, even if it was originally in the forest. Subduing and cultivating the earth, Locke argues, is therefore equivalent to acquiring dominion over it. One gave title to the other, so that God, by commanding to subdue, gave authority so far to appropriate in the condition of human life, which requires labor and materials to work on, necessarily introduce private possessions. Right? To use nature, you need to privatize at least parts of it. He expands the argument by arguing that it is really labor and not natural resources that creates value, at least most value. Nine-tenths of the value of land, indeed, really 99 one-hundredths of the value of cultivated land comes from the labor expended on it and not from the land itself. In other words, by cultivating land, you're increasing its productivity, its usefulness, 100-fold. And so long as there's plenty of land available, in doing that, you're not hurting anyone else. If anything, you're helping them by setting an example right, for how they can use labor more productively. Um, but Locke knows he has a problem here because, of course, in England, you can't just plunk yourself down on any piece of land and farm it and claim it as yours. Right? The land is privately owned. You only have the right to farm that which is already yours. So how does this come about? And Locke gives essentially two answers. Uh, one is that as population grew, different groups divided to or decided to divide up the territory. So some of it belonged to one group, some to another. Right? Kind of shadow of the theory of a treaty of transfer. But the other has to do with money and commerce. Right? Remember Locke's doctrine that you can't appropriate that which is simply going to spoil. In a natural state, that means there's a real limit to what you can farm, what you can consume. But imagine, he says, that people discover a shiny yellow metal and agree to value a little piece of that yellow metal as equivalent of a big piece of flesh or bushels of acorns. The yellow metal does not perish. You can keep it forever. You can hoard it. And you can then use it to acquire other goods. 
so that once you discover an imperishable commodity that you use as money, and he uses the term money, you enable trade and you enable an accumulation of property well beyond what would exist in a natural state. And this, he implies, he doesn't really go into this, but he implies this also leads to further productivity of land, invention of new products, um, a kind of development which is well beyond what would take place in a natural state. And this permits the accumulation of greater amounts of property, which for Locke explicitly can take place only in commercial societies. Only societies that trade, that have money, can acquire large estates. Now, it may be obvious how this logic would apply to America and Native Americans, but we don't even have to make the leap of logic because Locke makes it for us. He uses Native Americans as his case for people who do not have commerce and therefore do not have this kind of right. In making the argument that land is most productive because of labor, he can says there cannot be a clearer demonstration of anything than several nations of the Americas are of this, who are rich in land and poor in all the comforts of life, whom nature having furnished as liberally as any other people with the materials of plenty, a fruitful soil apt to produce in abundance what would serve for food, raiment, and delight, yet for want of improving it by nature have not one one hundredth part of the conveniences we enjoy. And a king of a large and fruitful territory there feeds, lodges, and is clad worse than a day laborer in England. But again, he asks, what would a man value 10,000 or 100,000 acres of excellent land, ready cultivated and well stocked with cattle, in the middle of the inland parts of America, where he had no hopes of commerce with other parts of the world? It would not be worth the enclosing, and we would see him give up again to the wild common of nature whatever was more than would supply the conveniences of life to himself. So for Locke, private property, the accumulation of property, is dependent on commerce, is dependent on money, is dependent really on an economic system that he associates with Europe and England. And Native Americans, because they don't have such a system, do not have private property in the same sense. Or rather, they have it perhaps, but in a very limited way. The implications of this would be if you're coming to New England, and you see a plot of land that's been farmed by a native family, well, that plot belongs to the native family. But everything else around it does not, right? Because it's not cultivated. And native people, being in a state of nature, only have the right to what they can appropriate by their own labor and use for their own use. And obviously, all of this wild wood is just going to waste. It is waste. And therefore, if Englishmen come along and graze their beasts on it and, and, and chop down the trees and settle farms, Englishmen acquire a property right. And you may even ask the native who's farmed that little plot to put a fence around it, to enclose it, to keep out your beasts grazing in the forest, because after all, appropriating land goes with enclosing it, enclosing and improving, right? So the natives can be asked to do that. Right? And from an English point of view, this all makes perfect sense. It seems perfectly reasonable and just. Um, of course, what it's ignoring is all the ways in which natives are using the land um, and you know, how
how convenient from an English point of view. Now, in the 1620s, there would have been less emphasis on reason than Locke gave, less coherence to these arguments, um, but they would have been pushing pretty much in the same direction, probably with more emphasis on the biblical arguments. Um, but the logic was there, although there would also have been a realization that you know, property rights could be defined in different ways. They've been shifting in England. Um, things are not necessarily as cut and dried as these kinds of logical arguments suggest. And there probably would have been a sense that in any case you've got to codify it all and make clear what the rights are so that when we go out into the woods and plant our crops, we know that what we've acquired is ours and not somebody else's. Want to learn more? Download all of our full-length Voices from the Past podcast episodes as well as podcast sound bites from iTunes or stream it live on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. The Plymouth Plantation Podcast is produced by the Museum Experience Group and Plymouth Plantation Incorporated. Our theme music was composed by John Previdini. Thanks for listening.